the book of Matthew, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. Father, we just pause one more time and we ask for your word to ring clear in our ears and have its effect. We would pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see you this morning as the only one who has never sinned. You have perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. You were abundantly anointed by the Holy Spirit at your baptism and you completed all of the will of the Father. Without you, we are nothing. Without you, we are not here today. Without you, Lord Jesus, we have no hope. Without you, we are slaves to sin with no way of, of escape. And yet through you is life. Through faith in you is freedom. Through you, Lord Jesus, is deliverance from everything that the devil would want to oppress us with. And Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And so I ask for your help in speaking, and I ask for your help in those of us listening, that we would be able to hear what you would want us to hear this morning. So Lord, give us ears to hear, I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We have been following Matthew's unfolding and introduction of Jesus. He's uh, introducing us to this man who has just burst on the scene. And so we're following the life of Christ and trying to understand who he is and what he has done. Uh, we have just seen, um, in a little bit of a context and preparing for where we're going, uh, Jesus has just been baptized. Uh, John the Baptist appeared, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And suddenly, Jesus also appeared, and baptism was a, a sign of confession of sin and repentance from sin, turning away from sin. And Jesus appears, and John the Baptist says, Why are you here? I, I need to be baptized by you. 
And yet Jesus said, it's necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. This is part of the plan. So don't, uh, don't hinder me. Let me be baptized. And so he, John baptized Jesus. And at his baptism, part of what God was doing was revealing to the world, Jesus is the chosen Messiah. He's the one. And so when Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on Christ and remained on him. An anointing of the Holy Spirit remaining on Jesus to empower him to do everything that God had wanted him to do. And so that was a sign that God had told beforehand to John. When you see the Spirit of, of God descend upon this a person, he's the one. He's the Messiah. And so John had testified, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the earth. So that anointing was massively important. So the Holy Spirit now anointing Jesus and abiding on him. And at that moment, we know that was part of the will of God for Jesus because uh, out from, being, uh, from speaking from heaven comes the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there's a public declaration, Jesus is the chosen Messiah. Everybody heard this. Those around in heaven and on earth heard this declaration of God the Father. So God has, this, this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's publicly declared, Jesus is my disciples. Now, is my a Messiah. Jesus will choose his disciples next week. So come back. I'm a little ahead of myself. But God has now spoken about who Jesus is. And so what Matthew is doing to us, he's, he's telling us some things we need to hear. There are two phrases in that pronouncement of this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, which take us back to the Old Testament and prophetic announcements about who the Messiah would be. The first one, it comes from Psalm 2, which this is my beloved son. This is a declaration of God's anointing upon the Messiah. And God is quoting something he's already said, and he's now saying it about Jesus. And so Jesus is my son. He's the son. He's the anointed one. He's the one whom I am choosing to deliver my people. So this is my beloved son. But with whom I am well pleased, that portion of that phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 42, which points us to an understanding that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. So not only the anointed son, a powerful king of a new kingdom, but also a servant who would suffer. So both of these things God the Father is saying about Jesus. So he will be the Messiah, but he's also going to suffer. That's going to come. And so the question is, why is that happening? That's the question. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's my microphone. I don't know what's going on here. I don't want that to happen. But what we see is God asking a question here of who is Jesus? And that's, that's what we're trying to figure out. What, who is he? Is he just some guy from Nazareth? Or is he someone that we need to devote our lives to? Right? Is he just another carpenter? Or is he worth living and dying for? Every person in the room needs to answer that question. Is, is Jesus really who he says he is? Or is he just a nice story? If he's a nice story, that changes everything. But if he's the authoritative son of God, 
then we need to know who he is. So Matthew has given us some clues. I just want to review what Matthew has shared with us about the identity of Jesus. And so far, he has said, God's Messiah is, was going to be a son of David. So he started with a genealogy that takes us to Jesus being the son of David. We also saw that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Messiah would be born of a virgin. We get the story. Jesus was born of a virgin. Matthew tells us this. Messiah would be called out of Egypt. Jesus spent time in Egypt and was called out of Egypt. The Messiah would be despised like the Nazarenes. He will be a hated person. Jesus, when he came out of Egypt, landed in Nazareth. He moved into Nazareth. Messiah would be preceded by a messenger preaching in the wilderness repentance. And we know Jesus is preceded by John the Baptist who comes out in the wilderness, not an accident, preaching repentance. Messiah would also be anointed, Isaiah 42, with the Holy Spirit. And now we see Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit. Matthew's building his case He's giving you evidence to put your faith in Jesus, right? We Christians do not have a blind faith. We have a faith that is based upon solid evidence and here's hundreds of years of prophecy describing who the Messiah will be. Isaiah spoke 700 years before Jesus showed up. And now he's fulfilling all of these aspects and these first aspects he can't control. Jesus didn't control, he didn't choose to be born in Bethlehem. He didn't choose to live in Nazareth. Somebody else were making those choices for him. He didn't choose to have little baby boys killed when he was born. And yet all of that unfolded. There's good, solid evidence to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. And so that is the key to the next thought. Because God has now said, this is my beloved son. He's announced it. And anointed him with the Holy Spirit. The devil now will pick up on that phrase. In all of these temptations, this is the Son of God. And he will repeat that back to Jesus as he tempts him. So that's the question. Is he the Son of God? And the answer is, he is. And so now what must happen? So we see in verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of God then leads Jesus into the wilderness. Let me just read it one more time. Jesus was led up by whom? What does it say? By the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who is leading Jesus into the wilderness. What? To be tempted by the devil. And then after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. So let's, let's pick this apart. And I'm, I'm actually quite amazed at how much is here. Because when I, when I came to this passage, I was like, I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot to say, right? What? That's an idiot kind of thing to say. Don't ever sit down to the Bible and study God's word and say, well, I'm, this, there's nothing here for me. Actually, aren't you tempted to do that? Do you ever, do you ever do that? When you, when you sit down to read the Bible, do you, do you often think, I, I, I know this. this is, I've been here before. Wow, Satan is subtle. He is so subtle. I had somebody this week tell me, uh, I, I'm just not, the Bible doesn't do anything for me. I will go to my grave pleading with you, read the Bible. Read it. Read God's word. Because here, led by the Spirit out into the wilderness is what we see. Jesus is led by the Spirit. He's not choosing to do this. He's not, he's not choosing to go out in the wilderness on his own. He's being led by the Holy Spirit who just anointed him. Anointed him abundantly. 
and now moving him out into the wilderness. Why is the question? What led out in the wilderness? This is the, the will of God unfolding for Jesus' life. What is about to happen is at the, the movement of God's spirit provoking and, and moving him out into the wilderness. And so why in the wilderness? Are the sunsets better in the wilderness? What's the Holy Spirit doing here? And, and did John preach in the wilderness by just a happenstance? No, you remember, John went in the wilderness because he was fulfilling prophecy. It's part of the plan. So this too is not just happenstance. This is part of God's plan unfolding for his son, leading him out into the wilderness. And we have noted there are many aspects of Jesus' life that he is retracing the steps of the entire nation of Israel. For example, Israel spent time in Egypt. So did Jesus. Uh, the king of Egypt tried to destroy Israel by commanding the death of little baby boys. King Herod tried to destroy Jesus by commanding the death of little baby boys in Bethlehem. And God led Israel out into the wilderness after they were baptized in the, the Red Sea. They made their way into the wilderness where, where they, get, they met God. And so here, Jesus, after his baptism, very similar, being led by God out into the wilderness. And why the wilderness? Right? What happened in the wilderness? When Israel came out of Egypt, went through the Red Sea, and landed in the wilderness, what happened there? Do you remember what happened there? They got married. The nation of Israel married God the Father because he brought them out to, into the place of wilderness and revealed himself to them. He spoke the Ten Commandments to the entire nation. The Ten Commandments were not first written. They were first spoken. And that was essentially a covenant of love between God the Father. He was choosing the nation of Israel, calling them out to be his own, his one and only. Remember, part, first commandment, you'll love me and no other gods. Worship me and no other gods before me. That's part of that promise. And the nation of Israel responded by saying, everything you say, we will do. They, they said, yes. God said, will you marry me? And they said, yes, I do. As a nation, I do. And then something very interesting happens, which I didn't realize. So after God spoke the commandments, you remember the story of God speaking the commandments and it freaked the whole nation out. You remember that? They were terrified at God's voice and they said to Moses, um, can you go talk to him? Because we'll just stay back here. It's a little overwhelming. You, you go talk to him. We'll just, you tell us what he says. And Moses says this. This is Exodus 20, 20. After hearing God's voice, he says to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. See that? Test you. That the fear of him may be before you so that you may not sin. Right? So they're going out into the wilderness as a kind of test. Why? So that this fear of him, and that means reverent, awe-inspired worship. It's, it's, it's like that awesomeness that you see on the wedding day, right? I, I will never forget to my dying day the beauty of my radiant wife walking down the aisle in glorious white dress overwhelmed me to the point of tears. And so that, that kind of radiant beauty is what Moses is pointing to. God brought you out to see his beauty so that you would fear him and you wouldn't sin. You won't go anyplace else. 
right? He's to be your highest devotion. And so this is a kind of test so that you won't sin to keep you from sinning. Well, did it turn out that way? It didn't go well in the desert. And I don't know if you know this, immediately after that happened, there was a kind of wedding ceremony. There's a little dinner between the 70 elders and God up on the mountain and Moses and a couple of other uh, priests. And then after that, God said, okay, come up and I'll give you the written record of the Ten Commandments. Moses went up on the mountain. Do you know, how, you know for how long? Well, it's not seven. So what's the next answer? What's the next holy number? Forty. Moses was on the mountain with God the Father for 40 days uh, fasting. Moses was fasting. And he was receiving the Ten Commandments in written form. And God also gave him all of the instructions about the temple, the house we're going to live in. It's going to look like this. Here's how we're going to conduct ourselves. And he laid out the terms of the relationship. It took 40 days to do that. And at the end of that 40-day period, do you know what had happened among the people? They were weary of Moses' absence. They couldn't see Moses. They couldn't see God. They didn't know what had happened to him. And they decided we'd rather have a God we can see than one we can't. And who knows what happened to Moses? Maybe he's fallen on a rock and he can't get up. And who knows? And so let's create our own God. And so Aaron made the golden calf on the 40th day. And they broke their wedding, day, wedding vows on the 40th day of their marriage. And God said to Moses, go down. They failed. The nation of Israel promised faithfulness to God. They said, everything you say, we'll do. In fact, they said it three times. And then on the 40th day of their marriage, they had an affair. They worship a golden calf. So question, why is Jesus in the wilderness? Why is he fasting for 40 days? If Israel broke her vows on the 40th day in the wilderness, then Israel's Messiah must keep those vows on the 40th day in the wilderness. If Messiah was to redeem faithless Israel, then he must do so in the wilderness. Right? If Israel's faithfulness was lost in the wilderness, then it also must be found in the wilderness. If Messiah then is to redeem this nation, then he must obey where they disobeyed. And Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to keep the promises that the nation made. Jesus is now going to keep them on behalf of the nation. Jesus is representing Israel out in this wilderness. He's going to a test. He is being tested to see, is he really the one? Now, this helps us understand what I don't know if when you read this passage, and I do plead with you, I hope you're reading along as we're moving through Matthew. I hope you're, you're reading the, the, the next passage. And so just keep the, the last half of chapter four is next week, just so you know where you're going if you want to read ahead. And yet here we see the Holy Spirit led uh, Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And how many of you like that verse? What, he led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? I don't get that. That sounds kind of scary, right? If the Holy Spirit leads us into temptation, well, point of clarification. The word, the Greek word, pirazo, which is translated here as temptation, simply means to test, to put to the test. And most of the time when the word is used, it means the process of testing whereby one's character or, or worth is exposed or revealed. Now, the, the translators pick the translation of this word depending upon the intention of the one who's using the test. So there's two agents here. God, the Holy Spirit, who is 
leading Jesus into the wilderness, not to tempt him to do evil, but to test him to reveal his character. So the Spirit of God wants to reveal who Jesus is. The other actor is the devil who is intending to tempt him. And when tempt is used, that word always means to do evil. So same word, but it's translated differently based upon the intention of the testor. And so we got two things going on. The Holy Spirit intending to reveal who Jesus really is and Satan intending to destroy him and to cause him to fall into sin. So that's what's happening. So don't think the Holy Spirit is leading him into sin, leading him into a test. God does test his people. He does test us. He does not tempt us to do evil. Never. God never tempts us to do evil. So this is happening out in the wilderness. Jesus is completely alone, by the way. His, his ministry has not started. He has no disciples. There's nobody with him. Uh, we are told elsewhere the only beings who are with Jesus in the wilderness is the devil and the wild animals. And I don't think either of them are very good company. Right? And so he's completely alone. This is a... Church history holds that the portion of a desert where this happened is called quarantina, which is the Latin word for 40, right? And, and that's, this is where we get our word quarantine. It, it's a period of isolation. It comes from, from this experience in Jesus' life. So think about that. We have a word in our language which relates back to Jesus' experience in the desert alone. Uh, it happened somewhere, if church history is right, this is, happens about seven or so miles northwest of the city of Jericho in that portion of the Judean wilderness. Now he's there uh, for 40 days. There's actually a monastery that uh, is to this very day uh, on the mountains up there, on Mount uh, Temptation as it's called. Um, that was dedicated to Christ, in case you're curious and ever want to visit. Um, it's right on the edge of the cliff. I saw, got some pictures of it. It's quite scary. So if you're afraid of heights, you probably don't want to go there. But nevertheless, Jesus is there for 40 days. Now, one point of clarification. Uh, he didn't just endure three temptations. It, it's not just those three. Sometimes we mistakenly think, well, that's it. That's not a very, that's not a very serious test. It was actually tempted, tested by the devil for 40 days. All 40 of those days involved continual temptation. And we see this very clearly from the other gospels. So Mark tells us in 1.13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 40 days being tempted by Satan. Luke says the same thing at the beginning of uh, chapter 4 in his gospel. Uh, Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So here's Jesus. He's enduring a month-long temptation, a barrage of temptations to do evil, and he has nothing to eat. I, I, I don't know how he did it. I, I'm weak. When I, when I don't eat, I get weak. 50 minutes, right? How long can you last? When our bodies are weak, are we spiritually strong? And here Jesus, 40 days without eating, and he's being tempted the entire time. And so that's not the last time either. This didn't end here. Luke tells us at, in 4.13, the devil had ended every temptation. There's a lot of them. And then he departed from him until another opportune time. Meaning he came back. 
Once, yes, he, he left Jesus, but he came back at him again and again and again at other more opportune times. So this was not the end of Jesus' temptation, but he endured it, physically weakened, having not eaten, and yet, yet he went through it without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Have you ever been tempted to think, well, Jesus, he never gave in to sin, so he didn't really know what it's like. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't really know the depth of the struggles that we go through because he, he's never experienced sin. Yeah, he was tempted, but he didn't, he didn't experience sin. And actually, it's the opposite. Right? Jesus knows better the full extent of the allurement of temptation because he endured and never gave in. Right? When, you, when you're going through a temptation and Satan is pounding you with the allurements and the attractiveness of, of lies in order to give in to sin, we all give in before the temptation gets the hottest. Jesus did not. He pressed through every, everything Satan could throw at him. He endured it and went through it and finished it. Right? So Jesus actually knows the, the power and the allurement of the temptation you're struggling with way better than you do because you've given in. Think of it this way. I was trying to figure out how can we illustrate this? Well, it's football season, right? Imagine the linemen are, are, the, are the temptations of Jesus. And Jesus is like a running back. And he, he goes through the line, the linemen of temptation, and, and they all try to tackle him at the line, but he breaks through the line, and then what? He's got the linebackers he's got to break. And he goes through, he hits all of them. He's still not down yet. He's still not all the way through either because he's got a couple of safeties in the background who are coming at him pretty quick, and they tackle him. Now, he suddenly defeated all 11 on the other side. He, who knows the power of, of the temptation, of the strength of that team? Jesus who ran through all 11 of them or us. Now we're like the other running back who comes through the line and we hit what? A, a, a cough by a, 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 a lineman and we go down after 30 seconds. We only make it two yards, right? Who knows the strength of temptation? The guys who fail after a couple of steps are the one who endures all the way through to the end. And you think Jesus doesn't know what you go through. You, you think he doesn't understand. You think it's impossible for him to truly empathize with how difficult your situation is. It's not. He knows full well what you're going through. He knows the, every we, he was tempted in every way, every way that we are tempted. And he made it. He didn't fail the test. He persevered and went through. That's what Jesus is doing here on our behalf. He's representing the people of God before God the Father in an incredibly weakened state. Hasn't eaten in 40 days. And so now Satan comes to him and attacks him at his most vulnerable. Let's read it one more time. Uh, 2, verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, right? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So interesting fact, he fasted 40 days. And then what does the text say? Then he was hungry. 
Now, those who would have fasted for extended periods of time, say at about day 10-ish, the hunger just goes away. The desire for hunger just stops and your body just kind of shuts down. And I guess been calling out for food long enough and you're in ignorance. Okay, we just stop calling, right? And, and yet at some point around the 40th day, when that's about the extent we can go, hunger returns because you're almost at the point of death. It, it's very possible Jesus is at that point where he's, he's spent. He has no physical reserves at all. And that's why he's hungry. And then what happens? Then he comes. Then the devil comes. And I would just, just a footnote here. Devil's real. The devil is a real spiritual being. And we live in a world where people say, you really believe that? Like, yes, I do. I don't think Jesus was fighting some imaginary phantom. He's, he's really struggling here. The Bible affirms the reality of Satan at many places. This is one of them. So realize that we do have an enemy and he comes at the most vulnerable time. Diabolically cruel coming at that point and saying, Jesus, look what he says, by the way. If you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. The if is not necessarily a question of identity so much as a statement of privilege. I don't think Satan is doubting who Jesus is, right? The demons, think about it. Fast forward with me in the gospel, those of you who know the story. Every time Jesus shows up and a demon says, who, who are you? Is that what demons say when Jesus walks into the room? What do, they, what do they say? I know who you are, you holy one of God. I know who you are, son of God. The devil knows exactly who he, What he's saying here is, since you are the son of God, why don't you just make breakfast? Just, you're hungry. You're the son of God. That's your royalty. Why are you hungry? You're not being treated like royalty. You're not being treated like the son of God. So why don't you just make some breakfast? Is it a sin to eat? No. What's, what is going on here? It's not a sin to eat. It's not. And yet Jesus' answer helps us understand. Look what he says, right? It, he quotes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. I went back to that quote. I want to read it to you. All right, man shall not live by bread alone. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And I want you to hear this because this helps understand what's going on here because it's not a sin to eat. So here, here's the whole the context. Uh, you shall remember, this is Moses repeating to the people of Israel and reminding them of God's law. You shall remember on the way that the Lord your God has led you. Is that Sound familiar, by the way? He's led you these 40 years in the, de in the wilderness. And do you know why 40 years? Israel was 40 years in the desert because they lost faith within a 40-day period. They, in spying out the promised land for 40 days, came back and said, we don't believe God can get us in there. And so as punishment, it was one year for every day of their disbelief. So 40 years because there was 40 days. So they failed in 40 days. And that's why there was 40 years in the desert. And yet God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. Next word. 
and testing you to know what was in your heart. He's revealing something. The test is revealing, right? Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, which you'd never had before, nor did your fathers, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So when the nation of Israel was hungry and they said, what kind of God is this who is letting us hunger? He doesn't like us. He doesn't care for us. It's so much better back in Egypt. We had leeks and watermelons and onions and all kinds of good stuff. We just go back there. God, why was God letting them hunger? To teach them that, that, that food is not the most important thing. He is. The point of their hunger was to teach them man does not live by bread alone but comes from the mouth of God. Meaning God was training them in their suffering, in their hunger to, to, to trust him when all physical resources are gone. There was a good motive behind it. And they failed, they missed the test. They failed the test. And so here again, Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna fail the test. I, I, I know that God the Father is sweeter than food. I know that he will sustain my life even if there's no food around. And a question, do you trust him that much? Do you trust him that much? Or when you're suffering, do you accuse him? Do you impugn the motives of God when you're suffering, assuming he must have it out for you? This verse would tell us he's probably trying to teach you something else. Not that he has ill intentions towards you. He is teaching us something through it. Israel failed that test. Jesus is here passing that test. I'm not going to... It is written, Satan. It is written. Now, the second temptation. It's very different. Verses 5 to 7. Let's read that. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If... You can say, since, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is mind blowing to me. Do you know Satan reads his Bible? He has devotions. Do you know he memorizes scripture? Astonishing, isn't it? He's quoting Psalm 91 rightly. He quotes it accurately. He's got it memorized. Satan's memorized scripture. He's thrown it at Jesus saying, and what Psalm 91 says is God will protect his people. And so Jesus just, uh, it's about 180 feet, by the way, from the top of the temple to the lowest valley below, about 180 feet. So you imagine standing up and saying, uh, just jump. Uh, God's word says he's going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. And Jesus says, there's also another scripture that says, don't put the Lord to a test. Don't create a false crisis and then demand that God act. Don't get yourself into trouble and then demand that the Lord deliver you. Don't manipulate the Lord and presume upon him and force his hand. That's not, scripture interprets scripture here. And that is, that is a challenge for all of us. We need to know the whole counsel of God in order to rightly handle questionable passages or difficult passages. 
And so here, don't force the hand of the Lord. It is, is sinful to do such a thing. So Israel didn't. The context of this verse 8 is that they were out of water and they said, is God really here or not? Back in Deuteronomy where this quote came from. Is God really going to give us water or not? And they demanded water. They passed. They failed the test. They forced God's hand. And so Jesus is here. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I will not force God's hand. And the third temptation, 8 to 10, the devil then took him to the very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all of this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So the devil uh, knows Psalm 2, which is where the declaration of Jesus as son comes from. Let me just read that to you. Psalm 2, 7 and 8 says this, I will tell of a decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's what God said at Jesus' baptism. And ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and all of the ends of the earth your possession. And Satan says, uh, Jesus, okay, so God's promised you the inheritance of all the nations. Why don't we just skip the suffering part? You worship me, and I'll give it to you right now. We'll just cut out the hard part and we'll just go to the end. We'll cut to the chase. You can have it all. You just worship me. That's what he really wants. And Jesus says, no. I will worship the Lord my God and him only will I serve. That's what the, the word of God says. And I will, I will not fail this test. Satan knows faithfulness to, to the Messiah is going to be rewarded by ruling over everything. And so he just wants to, let's just have it without the suffering. Isn't that every temptation? Every temptation is a shortcut to some good that God has promised. It's just a shortcut. Every single temptation. Just get it this way rather than God's way. Beware of that when you're tempted. I, I think you'll see that it's true. And so he again quotes scripture and, and says this. Uh, with, with verse 11, the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus can't feed himself. He's, he's physically exhausted. He has no more strength. And this, is, this happened to Elijah. When Elijah fled after the episode on Mount Carmel, he ran into the, the, uh, the wilderness and an angel came and cooked him breakfast and said, here, I'm, I'm going to take care of you because you can't take care of yourself. And here is another angel taking care of Jesus because he too is physically spent. And so... They, they wait upon him. The verb here, ministering, is actually the root word for deacon. The angels came and they were deaconing him. They were serving him. They were taking care of his needs. That's what deacons do. They serve. And so the devil then left him. So what are we left with as we conclude? Uh, Jesus followed in the footsteps of Israel. He went into the wilderness where they were, and he succeeded in every place that the nation of Israel failed. He obeyed in every place that the nation of Israel had disobeyed. When they disbelieved, Jesus believed. When they put God to the test, Jesus did not put God to the test. When they, when they worshipped an idol, Jesus did not worship. He refused to worship anything other than God the Father. And so he has now modeled for us the kind of life that we are to live. And I, just one point of application here. Jesus handles every temptation with scripture he's got in his head. 
He's got scripture memorized. He quotes all three times from the book of Deuteronomy. And I, I know of no greater weapon to attack Satan when you're being tempted than to use the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit, right? So when you're fighting temptation, do you have any ammunition in your head? Do you have the word of God memorized? I, I plead with you, memorize something, even if it's Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? God's word is truth. Every temptation is a lie. You fight lies by proclaiming the truth. So memorize God's word. If there's one lesson out of this for all of us, it is memorize scripture so that when you're challenged, you will have resources to fight back. Also, you can't do this without the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. He did not pass this test because of physical strength. There was no physical strength. He did not power his way to victory. He was, he was crippled by the end of this adventure. Angels had to come and take care of him. You don't get into heaven by willpower. You, you won't get into the, the, the gates of heaven with effort. You get into heaven by faith in this man who perfectly obeyed every command of God the Father. Total faith in Jesus is what gets us into heaven. Grace alone, his active righteousness in obeying and fighting temptation gets credited to us if our faith is in him. So what's the point of this sermon? It's to help you put your faith in Jesus. That's, that's the first point of this sermon. It is to, for you to confidently rest all of your being upon this man called Jesus who was born in Nazareth. That's the point. And it also subsequently then is to help you memorize scripture, let God's word soak into your mind so that your mind can be changed and you can fight these battles because you've got an enemy. You've got an enemy. Now Satan is one being who can only be at one place and one time. He, he's not uh, omnipresent as God the Father is, but he's got a lot of other demons with him. Right? And so yes, there is a demonic world that is, is opposed to all righteousness. And so by the power of the Spirit of God, we can walk the, whole, the, the Christian life. But you need to have the Holy Spirit. And I, I wonder, some of you are here today, you, you're going to church, you're, you're, maybe you're reading your Bible, but do you have the Spirit of God within you? Right? Satan knows Scripture, does Bible studies, sits around at night, you know, reading the Scripture, not ever for the sake of obeying it, but for manipulating the Word of God for his own purposes Going to church does not make you a Christian. Keith Green once said it. Going to church does not make you a Christian any more than uh, going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's true. Reading the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Satan does that. Holy Spirit, do you have the Spirit of Christ within you? Do you have the Spirit of Christ within you? Without the Spirit of God, no transformation of heart. There's, there's no connection with God the Father without the Holy Spirit. Don't leave today without knowing if you've got the Spirit of Christ within you. If you need prayer, we're, we're going to pray with you. We, we will have prayer team members who will be ready to pray with you. So we're going we're to stand and sing. 
And I'm going to invite you to, to stand with me as the worship team comes. But, but I want to ask you, do, are you surrendered to the Spirit of God? Are you surrendered to the Lord Jesus? And are, are you uh, submitted to Him? And if you don't know that you have the Spirit of God, there are going to be people uh, at each of these prayer stations during this song who would be happy to pray with you. So, it, it, and if you're one of those people, it's like, I just don't know for sure. Come and, and let's, let's talk and we'll pray. So you stand and we'll sing. Just a word, uh...